Welcome once again to the Kuiper Collective Podcast, a podcast of faculty, alumni, and friends of Kuiper College. We're on episode six of our summer book discussion series on the new book, From Lament to Advocacy, Black Religious Education in Public Ministry. I'll be your host again, Jeff Fisher, academic dean and a professor of theology at Kuiper College. Now, if you've listened to our previous episodes discussing this book, you'll know that we found it to be very relevant to our current culture, our calling as Christians, and to our vocations in Christian higher education. Next week, we'll be talking about religious education in prison ministry, and then the week after that, we will finally get to the chapter written by Kuiper College professor Dr. Rochelle White, and I'm really eager for that one. Uh, this week's chapter is entitled Religious Education and Womanist Formation, Mothering and the Reinterpretation of Body Politics. This chapter is authored by Dr. Nancy Lynn Westfield, the director of the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning in Theology and Religion in Crawfordsville, Indiana. Uh, she earned her PhD in Religious Education and Womanist Studies from the Union Institute in Cincinnati, Ohio. She holds a master's degree in theological studies with an emphasis in African-American spirituality from Drew Theological School and also earned a Master of Arts degree in Christian Education from the Skerritt Graduate School in Nashville, Tennessee. And she holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Agriculture from Murray State University. Uh, and so again, before we start our conversation in this chapter, I'd like to invite our other participants to introduce themselves. Rochelle White, Professor of Youth Ministry and Director of Ministry Leadership Internships. Lisa Hogelbaum, Professor of Intercultural and Biblical Studies. Thanks. It's, it's good to be having these conversations together. Um, and I continue to be grateful for your willingness to be a part of this and engage in this and let others listen on our thoughts and our, our processing of this. Um, so this chapter is on womanist formation and specifically considers the role of maternal advocates, especially among black females. So <laughs> I'm just going to straight up acknowledge that it is weird and perhaps a bit awkward but hopefully not counterproductive that I as a white male privileged educator historically and systemically connected with the oppressing group uh, am leading this conversation. But I hope that's not only okay, but also a positive way for me to support and help give voice to those whose voices have been silenced, ignored, and even despised. Um, so I'm sure that listeners want to know what is meant by womanist formation or womanist pedagogy, another phrase that she uses in this chapter. And so I wanna actually begin with three brief quotes from the beginning of the chapter. Um, so this, the first one's on page 118. Um, and I think this might help clarify some things for listeners. And then I also wanna get some input from uh, the two of you as well. So on page 118, uh, she says, womanist pedagogy is not a counterpoint to traditional male dominated white essentialist pedagogies the aim of womanist pedagogy extends to problematizing, analyzing, making new meanings, and creating new dreams in space of teaching and learning. The aim is to understand and reconceive the African diaspora as normative, as critical, as life-giving, and as life-sustaining for all people. And then on page 119, the third one here, womanist pedagogy does not proffer a counter-narrative to white normativity, but is a meta-narrative of God's dream for all humanity. I found that really helpful uh, and an engaging start to this chapter, and this chapter was extremely fascinating to me. Um, and, and 
you know, such a learning experience for me. So uh, my first question is, what did you find helpful or clarifying about the way Westfield describes womanist formation? Why is it womanist formation or womanist pedagogy? Why is that necessary? And I think it might be helpful to clarify, is this different from feminist theology or feminist interpretation? I'll start and I'll answer the last question first. Is it different from feminist pedagogy? Absolutely. Simply because it begins with black woman's experience, which has to do with race, gender, and class. Whereas feminist ideas talk about class and gender. Mm. So there's that really significant component of race in addition to the class and gender. Yes. And I think it's helpful that um, Dr. Westfield lays it out in this manner um, and creating these definitions because over the years, I have been exposed to um, womanist theology, womanist ethics throughout my entire seminary career beginning in the 90s. So I'm familiar with these terms and with the women who who, um, espouse womanism Mm -hmm. as one of their core belief systems. And it's very helpful because it also shows us that woman's, black woman's experience is important as well. You know, it, it, it shouldn't be just on the back burner, yeah. but that it should be an equal part. Like she said, in her own words, it should be normative, mm-hmm. you know, and, it, it's, and it's an issue of equity, but it's also an issue of history. Mm-hmm. And that history has shown black women and their bodies in certain ways and has treated them in certain ways. Yeah. You know, and I think that her laying out the framework of this definition as a normative practice, as um, justice for all people, a meta narrative of what God is doing in our lives, you know, brings a sense of not just equality, but a sense of equity it's to been- um, the conversation when we look at theology and who's important and whose perspective we take mm-hmm. on certain issues and whose perspective is totally negated. Yes, well, I, th- I think what I take away from this chapter is that uh, womanist theology is not about eliminating other theologies. It's about adding, right, as a, this formational method that helps black women and girls, right, gives them voice, it gives voice to their stories. It helps them unlearn the messages that white and patriarchal societies uh, are feeding them. Um, and it reminds them of their own gifts and worth. And yes, I, um, I agree. It should be normative for, for all of us. We can all benefit from, from this approach. Yeah, so it's necessary to hear it because it's really been downplayed and ignored. Mm-hmm. And I mean, really even I mean, from what I'm gathering from this chapter and what you're saying here, that even among the feminist movement, feminist theology, feminist interpretation, the black female voice has still not been incorporated into that. And so there's this additional womanist voice that needs to be heard as well. And then, Jeff, there's also a black feminist voice. So it's not just womanist, it's not just feminist, then there's a black feminist voice. Can you say more what the difference between black feminist and womanist is? I can't say specifically, but I think it deals with the, for, for womanism, 
there is a definition by Alice Walker um, mm -hmm. that was written in the book In Search of My Mother's In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, which talks about womanism as a whole. And um, Dr. Westfield talks a little bit about part of that definition in her work, but not the whole definition. And I think it has to do with some of the criteria or characteristics of the definition that okay. black feminists may not agree with this part of womanism. The womanist theology um, in this chapter as portrayed by Dr. Westfield definitely has a God center. Yeah. Right? Um, it's it's um, biblically centered. And so I would imagine that that is one, um, one difference perhaps. Well, that's a question I had that Rochelle, you might be able to answer is, uh, is all womanist formation, womanist pedagogy maybe, or womanist interpretation uh, theologically inclined? Or, I mean, cause that could be a distinction with feminism that it's not necessarily theologically inclined. Well, you have different aspects, like you may have womanism and then the woman in the academy began with woman, womanist theology, womanist ethics. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think it initially, because Alice Walker, the poet and author, is not a uh, minister yeah. or a theologian, we would call she's a, she's a novelist. And so she began with a broad definition, and then Black women in the academy appropriated according to their discipline. Okay. And is, is the academy that appropriated it primarily seminaries and theological institutions, or is it much broader? I would say well? it started in the theological academy, okay. and then okay. it broadened its way into undergraduate institutions yeah. and other organizations. So I have another quote that I want to use here. Westfield notes that the patriarchal racist framework of education too often represents womanist pedagogy as a radical or separatist, or worst of all, a kind of bouquet pedagogy. And this is this dismisses or undervalues or in many ways signals that it's deficient or not really scholarly. Um, and, you know, the little bit that I've encountered this, I've seen this in textbooks and in like readers that I use for theology and church history. It's kind of a, uh, an other view. Um, would you agree with that, at least her assessment that womanist pedagogy kind of gets relegated to some other kind of non-normative approach if it's, if it's included or referenced at all? Well, I'll just say that, yes, I haven't come across it very much. I mean, the exception <laughs> being Rochelle's work in her articles and presentations. Um, I think that's, that's really where I've encountered it um, and not outside of that. And that, you know, that's a testimony there, I would say, yeah, it yeah. is a patriarchal racist framework. Why haven't I come across that more? Yeah, these voices don't really get selected to be included in theological works. Yeah, and would you agree with that, Rochelle? Yes, I would agree. Um, because it is not the norm um, that is seen as less than because of the position that Black women have been relegated to in society as less than that why is it important? Yeah. I've so, often seen in my seminary classes, um, students really revolt against having to read anything that may be from a black woman that's considered womanist. Mm -hmm. you know, say if you have a, a professor who is a womanist theologian 
and she brings to the classroom resources by other black women as a point of departure, it becomes a problem. Yeah. Why are we read the, the primary question being, why are we reading this? And is there any expression of like their, their reasons for resisting it other than like, you know, that's not really, I really don't feel like that's important. I think if there are other reasons, they would not out and out say it because they could be framed sure. in other terms. Um, so to just say, well, why is this significant to what we're doing in this class? Yeah. And leave it at that, rather than saying, I don't want to read this for this particular reason and yeah. tell what the real reason is. So they're probably not going to overtly articulate some kind of right. racist <laughs> response. Right. But yeah, kind of, again, just dismissing, ignoring, saying this isn't really worth my time and energy to, to hear. So while this, you know, we've talked about this, it's not a counter narrative, but she does identify that it responds directly to oppression, death, hatred, violence, and is a counteracting the silence and negation of voices, um, counteracting the perpetuation of dehumanizing the alienation from the normality of oppression. And I love this phrase she uses um, that she's doing, that womanist theology, womanist formation is doing this through risking communal speech. Um, and so she really emphasizes this, the personal story, hearing the narratives. Why do you think personal story and stories carry so much weight in shaping personal and community identity? Uh, and what might be some reasons we, we don't facilitate more of these kind of story sharing practices? Well, stories delineate life experiences. And the way we connect with each other is through life experience, through our stories. Mm -hmm. And so in my work with one of my professors, um, Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon, and she's considered one of the progenitors of the womanist movement, we always began with stories. Like one of our mandatory textbooks was always a book of short stories Huh. as well as looking at an ethics reader. And then we had to connect how those stories could converse with one another, look at, looking at it from the ethical perspective, yeah. and then looking at the story. And then the third step we had to do, we basically had to see how a church could vicariously enter into this conversation. And I don't think that if we had not used lived stories, we would have had that same ethical experience. In an oh, yeah. Class. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, and I just keep thinking like this, this actually parallels so much with the Bible itself. I mean, there's, it's so much story and communal, community shaping stories. Um, and then, you know, with Womanist as, as coming from Alice Walker, a novelist, like it really makes sense that this unfolds as this storytelling practice. You know, I have noticed more and more, <clears throat> um, you know, going to conferences and so on about the importance of story sharing um, on college campuses. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if it really has come perhaps from this, from womanist practice. Um, and, you know, it's been, it's not been acknowledged as that perhaps. Um, so I think it, it has caught on and I think, you know, that's a, that's a good 
thing, a very good thing. Yeah. But there, your question about, you know, why do you think that Dr. Westfield is saying that the personal story and stories carry so much weight in shaping uh, this, you know, this community, this community identity. And I think it just in the doing of it, in the exercise of telling your own story, right? Mm -hmm. You're declaring, I have worth. Mm -hmm. And so that story, mm -hmm. uh, it carries weight in, in this particular context uh, because black women and girls have been so devalued in society. That's, it's, it's allowing them to declare, right, that my story matters. Yeah. It's a first step in, in um, the next steps of, of, um, of giving voice in other arenas. I mean, and that really connects with, you know, what she talks about is reinterpretation and reimagining, re, re untelling the story and then retelling a story, resisting and refusing and contradicting the lies yes. of oppression that would label, I mean, particularly black females in this case as inferior, subhuman, unworthy, or a problem. Like that, hearing the story, telling the story, and then, I mean, she uses this great example of her own experience of how her mother helped re-narrate uh, the experience she had. Was, was there anything that um, was unique or interesting or relevant? I mean, for me, the whole thing was unique and very interesting. It caused me um, to uh, think about my own life hmm. in ways that um, centered around this particular quote on page 121 at the bottom. Alice Walker saying that mostly she taught, she taught by the courage of her own life which to me is the highest form of teaching. Mm. And so I looked at the black woman in my life over the years um, and they have taught me by their own life. Uh, for example, my grandmother always told me to make up my bed every day, mm. even if I only make it up at night before I get in it again. <laughs> and so every single morning, I think about my grandmother as the reason why I make up my bed, because it shows a sense of pride that you mm -hmm. care about your surroundings, that you make up your bed each day. And so just that quote from the book, that small quote made me reflect on all of the women who basically have gone on are, are now part of the ancestors mm -hmm. whose life lessons I, I, I have learned from because it's how they lived. Yeah. They weren't teaching me from a book. They weren't teaching me from a magazine but they were teaching me from the content of their own life. Mm -hmm. So that's what I appreciate um, from this article. Just that small quote, mm -hmm. um, in addition to what else that Dr. Westfield wrote. Yeah, I mean, and that's such a great example of a formational process, a formational habit that you now have that then connects to this kind of thinking. I love this term, other mothers. Mm -hmm. Rochelle, is that a, a term, a phrase that you use or are familiar with and right i still i still have a couple other mothers um in my life one particularly here in michigan calls herself my michigan mom all right and then there's another one who is just mom but they are my other mothers yeah but i'm very selective on who i choose as an other mother sure not just any older woman could be an older another mother for me yeah you know they have to i guess meet certain criteria yeah. Yeah. 
So, They're definitely a familiar term. Can you say more about this this role and like what why is it important? Why like what what do you benefit from it? Well yeah, Rochelle, you're an other mother. Right. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying not to go there. <laughs> but I don't want to feel that old. <laughs> you know, I have to be Still old. trying to feel young. <laughs> But you've talked about your children in quotes. Yeah. 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 So my, so I'll use my example of my Michigan mom. She, um, she's a woman from my church, and she just basically, when I moved to Grand Rapids, she basically said, "Let's go out to eat," and we connected immediately, and we just kept connecting and connecting, and she's just a source of wisdom. She's a source of challenge. She'll challenge me. She'll question me. She'll encourage me. Um, and then at one point I said, well, why do you call yourself my Michigan mom? She said, because you're number one in Michigan. And number two, everybody needs more than one mother. That's wise. There's just a lot of wisdom there. And, and really an acknowledgement of the communal communal influence on our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I found that section of the chapter just beautiful, just beautiful, her description of other mothers and the, mm -hmm. the roles of those figures, that nurturing role that, that uh, Black women play uh, in the lives of the next generation. And it is obviously very important for the formation of Black females and their identity and um, place in society, um, particularly because of the hard things. And this is the, the difficult turn to the, the harder parts of the chapter. Um, so she uses this, this term, the practice of the gaze, um, that I'd rather have one of you talk about <laughs> what she's saying, but that it's, you know, this idea of viewing and labeling and categorizing Black women's bodies in particular, that at the same time make them invisible and hyper-visible. Uh, and she, you know, connects this to history, the U.S. history in particular with slavery and all that. I'd be very, uh, I think the listeners would be, it'd be helpful for them to get a sense of what she's talking about with this practice of the gaze and why it's so detrimental to Black females in particular. It's not just detrimental, it's disrespectful. Yeah. Because you only see me as my body. You know, you, you, you can't look past my physical attributes. And then when you talk about my physical attributes or you refer to my physical attributes, it's not in a positive way. Mm -hmm. It makes the, the rest of them invisible, right? That's why um, she said, the author says it's, you become both invisible and hyper-visible. Um, the invisible part becomes the the thoughts and the dreams, the value of the human self, those things become invisible because the body, it becomes hyper-visible. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, she traces that to history, to the, the purchase of enslaved women that hinged on, I'm quoting now, hinged on inspections of the black body that affirmed well-to-do whites' hopes for good stock, smart, gentle darkies who might play well with their children, 
work hard in their fields and remain compliant during rape and other unspeakable violence. It's, it's heart, heart wrenching. It is. And then that has been sustained mm -hmm. in society uh, all these, these decades later through, yeah. you know, through negative portrayals in the media, right? She goes on to explain some of those, those things. Um, it reminds me of the story of um, my own kids in school, in a local Christian school. Um, it was a diverse school. Um, so sort of an equal mix, white, black, brown. And um, there was a dress code and part of the dress code was about clothes too tight. And I have two daughters and they, <clears throat> they would come home in tears because their black and brown friends who were going through puberty earlier than they were, were getting punished for having clothes that were too tight. But they were saying, but there's only, you know, the, my, my daughters at their young age could tell that this wasn't fair. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, she said, what they were saying to me, these, these girls are wearing what they have. They're wearing the clothes they have. And um, they can't help their body shape, right? And so uh, I think things like that, um, practices like that, just continue the, um, the negative feedback to black and brown girls. Yeah, that even if the actual way to carry it out has changed thankfully significantly over the years or the decades, it's still there, it's still present and it still gets perpetuated. She talks about how the oppressed can actually assist the oppressor in oppressing those like themselves um, and connects it particularly to this idea of identifying race through the gaze upon the body I mean, that seems kind of counterintuitive, right? Like, why would someone who's being oppressed help those who are oppressing them to perpetuate these kinds of things? Um, but I think she helpfully explains how some of that happens. And, you know, the, the gaze, the practice of the gaze, uh, you know, looking at the body and even, um, I mean, one of the, the things I think about is like, what other people think black females can or cannot do or should or should not do, and then what black females themselves may be allowed to be reinforced consciously or unconsciously, subconsciously, that they themselves start believing what they can or cannot do or should or should not do in terms of like dreams and life and vocations and those kind of things. Yeah, um, I, have, I have a sad story to back that one up. A woman I met through church several years ago who called herself the black sheep of the family. And so as I learned her story, she, I realized she literally was talking about she was blacker than other people in her family. And so they called her the black sheep and hmm. she called herself the black sheep. And, um, and it led to 
um, she says, you know, she led her to down, down a very dark path. And then thankfully, she had um, some good counseling. And she was able to identify this. But yes, this she, she had internalized what other others had said. Um, and, and her own siblings had internalized this, this message too. Um, I found it to be uh, eye-opening and, mm -hmm. and so incredibly sad. That's a part of the colorism that exists in the Black community, where race, racial terms or racial ideology was inflicted upon Black people by the slave master. And then there were the children that the slave master fathered by a slave. And then there were just the slaves who were African. And so you have two skin tones, mm -hmm. a lighter skin tone and a darker skin tone. And of course, the lighter skin tone is the preferred skin tone. And so because I'm of a lighter skin tone and you are of a darker skin tone, you're thought of as less than, thus the black sheep. And so it began in slavery, this whole mm -hmm. idea of colorism. And, um, you know, as we connect it to the gaze and, and how that goes forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sure. still exists today. Oh, yeah. Strong ways. Again, I've mentioned Color of Compromise on this. This book alludes to several times, like how much our practices in the United States and then the theology and the, you know, thinking that gets used to support it, to justify it, still hundreds of years later, doesn't go away. Like it's still very much a part of what li real lived experiences are. And I think, you know, that's, that's part of the reason, you know, she really emphasizes in this chapter, this need to, to reinterpret. Um, and again, you know, this, this personal story she tells, um, uh, that's, that she then parallel uses as an, an illuminating metaphor for the ways that uh, the ways that the relegation of the body forms and informs African American girl children for purposes of oppression and captivity. That's you know what a powerful example, first of all, of her you doing what she's saying of using her own story to then connect to a, a broader thing and talk about how this is a, a lived reality for a, a many people. Either of you want to give like a brief summary of, of her story here, of the story she tells and kind of the impact that it has had on her own life and then what she does with it for the, um, for the last part of the chapter here? Well, I, I'll tell the story and then maybe you can finish it, Rochelle, or... Okay. Yeah, okay. So she was always put at the back of the line in elementary school because she was the tallest and they were lined up, shortest to tallest. Um, and the, the one in the front was always uh, put as the leader, the designated leader for doing anything, going anywhere. So because she was always in the back of the line, she didn't pay any attention to what it meant to be the leader. And then one day they were lined up to come in from um, recess. So she was at the back of the line. Then the fire drill went off. So the teacher said, about face. And all of a sudden she was at the front of the line and she was supposed to lead to the designated area um, that they would normally go to her fire drills, but she had no idea what to do because she hadn't been paying attention. In other words, she hadn't been put in the position of being a leader. She had always only been a follower. 
So that's the story she sets up. She uses a metaphor. Yeah, the system was set up that she should have no expectation of ever being the leader. And then the about face put her in that position. And, you know, she uses this language, her mother actually used the language that it was absurd that they should think that she should, would now just be able to step in and do what up to that point, there was no expectation that she would have ever been able to or been asked to be in that position. And then very helpful is what she shared that her mother taught her, mm -hmm. you know, through those, um, that experience. One thing is that her mother's is instructive. You know, it was an opportunity for her mother to teach her. So she talks about what her mama knew and that's not, not knowing your place could get you killed because that yeah. was what was going on in society at that time. Right. And that even though she was in the wrong place, she had made a mistake. She was not a mistake. Yeah. You know, so she learned inherent value, dignity, and worth, you know, through her mother. Um, and that was a part of what she learned. Let me see what else I have. Yeah. And all of that is key to womanist theology to circle back around, right? Um, continuing to um, to teach the next generation their inherent worth, yeah. um, especially black girl children, right? Right. Um, and it's also not just teaching black girl children, it's teaching black other black women mm -hmm. who may not have afforded, been afforded the same opportunities and experiences to know their value and worth. So it's like a sisterhood. Yeah. Yes, the girl child is important, important but all black women, you don't mm. leave anyone behind. Yes. So, I mean, maybe to kind of close our, to you know, pull all this together, are there ways to correct or to move into this better meta-narrative? You know, she, she connects us to discipleship, to child-parent relationships, to, to the other mothers. Is there, and, and even notes that sometimes our current methods are problematic mm -hmm. in languages of obedience, um, mm -hmm. Things like that that can internalize racism, sexism, self-denigration, and perpetuate this idea of allegiance to white normativity and unquestioned patriarchy. Um, are there ways that, that we can actually be a part of incorporating into this meta-narrative of God's design for all people, regardless of race and sex and privilege and status and all of those kind of things. You know, a takeaway I, I took as, as a professor is how important it is to, um, to allow students um, to have some ownership. Mm. Um, so giving some choices um, or having them, them speak into some of the topics um, or, or even some of the, you know, some of the readings or things because um, this, yeah, why that really, it really hit me hard, mm -hmm. you know, just telling them you need to do this, um, can do this reinforcing of, of some negative things, right? Um, I would say to continue to share stories mm -hmm. and unpack those stories and find out how we are alike, how we are different and just learn about each other. You know, it's about building relationships. <clears throat> I think is key um, yeah. if we're going to, you know, take away something from Dr. Westfield's chapter. 
All right. Well, as we finish up this chapter discussion, do you want uh, either of you have any last words? I think I want to share her definition of uh, black common sense. Black common sense as the collective knowledge, wisdom and action black people have used as they have tried to survive to develop a productive quality of life and to be liberated from oppressive social, religious, political, economic and legal systems. And I think that when you see that black people act different, it's probably because they're operating in their common sense, in the black common sense, um, as a means of survival, as a means of thriving. So I liked how she ended the chapter with that definition. That's a good word. That's a good word to end on. So thanks to both of you for the discussion on this chapter. And uh, we look forward to talking about the next one in a little while here.